How can you capitalize on your invention without having it stolen or going broke? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today I interview Simon Daniel, the CEO of Moixa Energy. Years ago, Simon learned a harsh lesson in market timing. He invented the folding keyboard. While it ended up being a large success, it took a long time to get going. He was too early with his innovation. Now he's out with a new invention, the USB cell. The USB cell looks just like a regular AA battery and works just like a AA battery, except to recharge it, all you have to do is pull the top off of it and it exposes a USB connector. You plug that into any USB port, like you might have on your computer, and it recharges. Pull it out, put the top back on, and it goes straight into any device that takes a AA. Simon just launched the USB cell a couple months ago at Demo, where I met him, and now he's out and taking it to the next level. We conducted this interview across the pond, as Simon would say. He's based in London and gives us some insight into what it's like to do business over there. Enjoy. Simon, welcome to Venture Voice. Hi, Greg. Before you went off to college, what was the achievement that you're most proud of now? Um, I, I think it was a combination of some of the school stuff in terms of we, we set up the first you know business in the school uh, and that you know did sort of fifteen thousand pounds of revenue or something in in eighty six I think uh, when I I took a year off from from between between uh, school and uh, Cambridge University where I worked at IBM uh, worked for their IBM scientific center in Winchester which is kind of an epicenter where a number of the you know early ideas came for an IBM like you know, Rex was created there by someone called Mike Collishaw and uh, they did the first sort of solid modeling program called Winsome which um, later I think kind of you know, became the sort of you know, used by you know the, the, the solid modeling then became the main thing a number of years later in the industry we had an artist there called William Latham used to create very weird three-dimensional um, computer graphics which uh, used to take sort of a few days to render each frame on a on a machine the size of a library I think they actually got rid of the library to put another machine in but I was doing a lot of work then on image processing and we wrote a language to do uh, sort of advanced image processing and and then uh, we were all students so we could kind of spend half our time doing whatever we liked and one thing I did was write a kind of a, a crude Rex-based browser search engine to try to uncover and navigate the internal forum system, which was then a sort of series of bulletin boards you could request and then have them downloaded. But I, I had an idea to sort of tag everything, and we had a little, little system we called Signpost, which sent notes to everyone and then created a, a topic index catalog for all the forums out there. And then you could kind of download a forum on request and search it. So it was kind of a, a very early thing, but it was it was, it was was good environment for just playing with you know, new ideas. And then if you have an idea, just, you know, just trying it. And uh, we were sufficiently kind of an adjunct to the rest of the, the IBM company that no one generally stopped you doing things which were um, new and interesting. And then after that, you went to Cambridge and you mentioned the uh, yes. same year as Sasha Baron Cohen? Yeah, so he was one of one of several people in the year. We, the that was a college called Christ College, and it's given rise to I think Mike Lynch was a, a student there. He went off to set up autonomy, and uh, the guy who set up um, WPP was there. And so it's kind of you know it's just but it's you know normal college has a whole bunch of diverse characters in it. Uh, I did it did uh, theoretical physics, but started from natural sciences, doing you know bits of com- computing, bits of biology and so forth and you know being a traditional UK university you spend, tend to spend most of your time uh, 
not actually working, but you know, doing all the societies. And so I got involved with you know, the industrial society then, which did a number of events, and the Cambridge Debating Union. I was a elected standing committee member where you ended up running debates and things. And I think the standing committee uh, was quite notorious because I think in the 1960s uh, there was a standing committee which had a one-time David Frost on it, um, Norman Lamont, Douglas Hurd, and about three other future um, Tory cabinet ministers. And so it's quite a, an interesting sort of network to get involved in, although it gets quite heavily political, but it's quite a an interesting society. Great. So I've just got to ask, though, were you able to kind of tell at the time with Sasha Cohen uh, where did you have a sense for where his career might be headed at that age? Not, not, not really. I mean, it's such a big, big uh, environment that uh, I, I know. You know, he did a number of sort of comedian um, things at college. Uh, he, we shared the same, the same tutor, uh, but I didn't have any <laughs> expectation that he would turn into the character he is today. Um, and sort of a serial manufacturer of sort of Madonna-like <laughs> um, changes of character every few years. And so he's a, uh, you know, he, he's, he's obviously done very well since since leaving. It's a, a question of just creating new characters and killing them off in spectacular ways will probably drive a lot of attention. To, to, to him in the next few years. And so after college, then you went off to Accenture? Yes, and I, 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 I did a, a few sort of things in, 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 just in the first few months to support a couple of entrepreneurial charities. Uh, but then I started Accenture, uh, I think it was sort of 90, around 94, yes. And what drove you there after being at IBM and kind of working on these ideas? What made you choose Accenture? Well, in, in part because, you know, in part, it, it's because I, I had a sort of long-term interest in the computer sciences. I, in fact, I'd, I was a scholar at my original um, school in computer science, probably the first time any school in England had a scholarship supporting that. And, and that kind of you know, had been a long-term interest in it. It, it. Accenture, then called Annas and Consulting, was an obvious place to sort of do a hybrid of what I was interested in in terms of business and, and strategic consulting, as well as something based in theory on you know, computing and computing systems and, and, and getting you know, companies to change behavior. And, and in part, what drove me was just an interest to sort of learn a bit more about how you know, the real world functions by doing the traditional consultancy thing of just seeing lots and lots of companies um, in a rapid period. So it's kind of an interesting perspective you have that you know now you're an entrepreneur and you're doing innovation as an entrepreneur, but what did you learn from doing innovation within a company and what you learn are kind of you know some of the unique skills that you need to be effective within a large company doing innovation versus being off on your own? Well, I, I think that is you know, one of the key things that I'm interested in, in the sense that you know, working within a large environment like uh, um, Accenture, is, it was seeing innovation in all its forms, seeing how it works or doesn't work within a large company, seeing how um, external companies sort of change and, and build new things. I, I did a number of additional roles within the first couple of years of being there, but then quickly kind of navigated a, a, a space where I could operate quite freely within what was then quite a strict corporate structure um, that I ended up getting into um, driving some innovation program in the center we had in New York called the Ideas Exchange, which was uh, right opposite the Rockefeller Center. It was an unbelievably space-aged sort of a demo stroke client 
education facility where you'd meet with boards of uh, financial companies of America and show them in that stage sort of the first generation of e-commerce and show what it actually meant to your company. You take them through a sort of scenario showing different outcomes. And we did a lot of work then just you know, educating about and observing you know, first generation e-commerce, drawing lessons out, sharing those in strategic workshops to do a lot of sort of future value scenarios with, with that kind of corporate audience. And that sort of then move on to, the, in the next few years, I helped set up a, a sort of a financial service e-commerce group, which did some of our work with some of the partners doing sort of bigger um, first generation corporate e-commerce and that was both setting up sort of startup um, sites as well as doing corporate venturing where a number of the big banks tended to want to do innovation at, at an arm's length at the edge of the company and sort of run it in a sort of incubator and we set up quite a lot of you know what's now known as sort of either corporate venturing or or the corporate incubation um, for a lot of the sort of normal fortune 500 type clients and so I've seen it both from how innovation kind of worked in you know traditional strategic consulting through to you know, how you build a venture practice to how you spin it out and and each company has a slightly different method of doing it and to see it in such a big forum um, with big companies to work how you train something which has you know a hundred thousand people in it through to setting something up as a, a spin out on its own with ten people uh, a lot a lot of the lessons are very similar um, but a lot of the uh, you can sort of draw lessons from each different type of company. And if you're building a new company today as a you know, startup CEO, I, you know, you, you've got to sort of see it from you know, having a company with no people to one person to five to 10 to 50 to something which could be 10,000 or 50,000. And you're having some ability to see when it's appropriate to scale or when it's appropriate to say partner and, and, and collaborate with people who have already scaled or, or also having a skill set to know, you know at different stages in the evolution of the company what skill sets are appropriate to bring in. And so it's, it's small things like that, and you, you, you can never, only ever see glimpses of each thing to, to understand what questions you might need to ask on different journeys you might do later. So with having that kind of great position at Accenture where you get to focus on innovation and also have an impact on larger companies, what made you decide to go off and start your own company? Well, I've, I've been sort of, because I sort of had this sort of genetic sort of innovation streak, I'd, whilst sort of being at Accenture, I'd done a number of other things um, in, in innovation space. Like I mentioned, some of the arts show I, I did earlier where um, there was actually in the discussion. But uh, when I was in New York, I started and did an art show down in Soho, just exploring some ideas of new materials in art, such as using obviously money or uh, cigarettes or, or different other mediums, just to sort of show an idea, a bit like a, uh, an advert or a bit like a sort of a piece of pop art. And you know, I walked down as an English guy in New York to one of the major galleries and they sort of liked what I sort of had in my bag and then they gave me a sort of short um, short show down there to, 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 to show you. Show wow, and all on the ideas. side of working and, at Accenture? That that was when I was based based in New York, yes. And it's, uh, I, but also when I was in the UK and partly when I was at university, I'd been looking at a number of you know, mechanical design for, for new forms of product. And it was kind of out of a number of things I'd done before came the idea for doing uh, a folding keyboard 
um, where it was pretty obvious that at some point in the future, um, the Apple Newton and other kinds of portable devices which sort of emerged in the, in the mid-90s um, would suddenly need some form of interface. Um, in some form of interface which was as good as the old one, the old full-size keyboard, but could be folded up. And, uh, uh, and I think it was in the mid-90s mid that I'd you know, started building some mechanical prototypes of, of what became a, a folding keyboard. And that became patterns which ended up, I ended up licensing through to a, a Californian company called Think Outside, which sold around 2 million units of the, of the original folding keyboard I had, some, had a patent over. And it was partly by sort of just seeing that you, know, you could take an idea from a sketch on a bit of paper through an IP system through to a license in, in, in through to reality. Um, they kind of you know, said that actually you know, coming into what, what I may do in the future is so you're saying we're actually doing innovation, doing all of it, it makes a lot of sense. And then doing startups and doing products at the right time, uh, you know, it was about timing when you start different types of scale enterprise. Yeah. So tell me about the folding keyboard. I mean, there you were a consultant. You know, how did you learn how to kind of architect it the right way, do the engineering specs, file the patent, and to do that, did you need to raise a lot of money or quit your job, or was that something on the side? It, 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 the skill set really came from what I've been doing at school and, and from university in terms of you know, having a, an idea for mechanical or electronic detail. Um, but in some sense, each of the products I, I think about has a different set of skills, and it's more about just having the idea for what the you know, product opportunity is, seeing a vision for you know, some future causal event where there is an idea to do something and that and that's time well of the market. And then actually just drawing, as soon as you see that, then certain things slot into place and certain things you don't have slot into place. So when I, when I did the first level design for the keyboard, uh, I you know, went through a normal route of talking to external prototype companies whilst prototyping it myself. I ended up getting a leading company in the UK to make a prototype. And the combination of what they did and my mechanical prototypes sort of validated that it was achievable. But I didn't get what I expected from the, the official prototyping company, I probably got more out of my own prototyping, <laughs> which told me what was good and what was what was bad about it, in order to sort of have a clarity that the thing was was actionable at a certain point in time. And then how did you take action on it, like actually get the file patented, and what kind of resources did you need to get it to that level where you could actually go out and license it to someone? The, I, I, the, the unusual thing about a lot of the IP we create is, and particularly now, um, is that we tend to sort of have an instinctive view of what a new product category is. And, and if that view is correct, um, a certain mechanical electrical detail follows from it. So we tend to sort of file a pattern on the way to actually make something, rather than say the generic idea of something. So we tend to sort of say, um, you know, if you're gonna make a folding keyboard, this is a, an implementation of a folding keyboard, this mechanic and electronically how to do it. And the claim space is, it kind of works backwards in IP language from, you know, well, that's the solution, um, and that's probably the best solution from the point of view of, you know, economics or timing or, in particular, usability. What makes the technology 
easy to use by consumers and it's you know humans don't evolve small fingers there's no darwinian speed of evolution today to to evolve blackberry fingers which are small elf like to use the new devices and that's not going to happen and as a result um, certain obvious usability characteristics they're always going to stay the same people like normal keyboards they need the feature of portability but they don't want a rubberized keyboard they don't want something small and unusable they want something which is full size and in creating an engineering challenge to say you must have these these variables to it constrains the engineering problem that certain things flow out from that and then certain you know, mechanical electronics inventions follow on that and then if you do the detail that's when you get to the substance of what actually is the unique innovations behind it if you just sort of write down the idea itself uh, and don't do the work then the patterns you get from just doing that stage aren't that you know, useful or practical or don't teach the art of the innovation itself that's interesting. So it comes down to not just having the general idea, but working out all the details on how it needs to be executed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've got some patents over you know, how how you'd build future wrist phones and and future um, a number of you know quite complex future devices. And and if you compare sort of the state of RIP in terms of how accurate it is and buildable, it, it's you know it's light years ahead of. You know, what some of the bigger mobile phone companies have done in saying, well, let's have a generic idea of something, you know, like a you know screen on a phone, and you know, and, and as a result, that you have drawings on those kind of devices, and not actually a real product. It's not what Apple or anyone else would do if they were building a real product. Um, it's not very usable, but you know, there's a little sketch which shows something, but it's never actually built. So we tend to think about if you were to actually build something which is going to be used by real people and is portable and has has certain properties to it to make it easy to use and simple to use, then you know that creates a sufficient constraint and you can design to those kind of parameters. So just taking the case of the keyboard, how much time did that take to get it to that point and how much money did that take to get it to that point? Um, it, it, it took sort of, you know, it was a time sort of you know, grabbed over a, a few years and uh, I think the thing which surprised me was the speed of the IP system in the sense we filed a lot of patent, uh, patents early and then we sort of filed updates on those but the actual time it takes to get something granted um, really surprised me equally um, it, it, it all, I talked to a number of companies about it so in the mid 90s the sort of the obvious sort of phone or, or consumer electronic companies and it was really too early for um, the folding keyboard market to exist it was then an accessory market um, which was always a percentage of you know an Apple Newton or or precursor to the sort of like cyan type devices where you know they sold a certain number um, but people bought accessories to those products but it was a very difficult time to say an accessory by itself can be a sufficiently compelling economic argument to justify the investments in doing it and that was kind of a good lesson learned from that time that you know I couldn't rush um, the buying of the technology by say an equivalent company in the market then or even the consumers who would have seen and said that's fantastic um, but only a percentage of people who had you know the first generation PDAs would buy it and say so, you know it was a good learning about when an idea is right for market it took maybe you know five years beyond that before you, know, you had the palm five in existence when there was a really much more compelling market for a generation of uh, folding keyboard devices around it and even you know more recently now the keyboard is still in uh, manufacturing just relaunched as a wireless version by Mobility Electronics who licensed the technology from, from us 
Um, and that's now an even larger market because there's, there's an even more compelling reason today for people to use um, keyboards because you can actually use your phone to do email, whereas you probably couldn't do an awful lot on the, on the, the PDAs in the year 2000. Um, and now you can actually use them to write an email and, uh, and you know, run, run documents uh, and run on the new uh, Windows portable software that actually, you know, the case for people to use Know, proper folding keyboards on the go is substantially larger than the two million units which were kind of sold in the 2000 to 2003, four times. So it sounds like the lesson from all that was that you can have the product idea right, but you also have to take into consideration the market timing. Well, exactly, but it's it's a market timing of the speed of decision making in the the mindset of the buyer. Um, if either it's the retail channel or it's the, the corporate buyer um, making a decision to invest in that project, and and it surprised me sort of that he, the, the timing was much slower than than, than one, one would have expected. And and I think we sort of used that lesson very recently in the sense that uh, within our, our new Moixa company, um, we've uh, you know we've got a lot of IP, and it's kind of designed to be relevant at different points over the next few years when the market timing is relevant. The technology is already done, it's already built, it's already uh, on a trajectory to. To, to be in the hands of consumers. But if I have the technology available today, it just wouldn't get distributed because the consumers aren't ready or the markets around it uh, are, are still converging. And so we've kind of worked backwards on you know, getting the IP based on for, for the future need, but not rushing forward on projects which are, are going to take you know, too much resource to, to, to educate too many people. It's like having a, you know, a very good very good joke, which is really funny in two years' time, when when there's a political situation which which is right for it. But if you if you try to sort of make mileage out of that that concept too early, it's not going to work. In the same, same way, if you have a if you have something which is too late, it's a, it's something which is outside its own context. It's, it's no longer relevant to the context it's operating in. So that timing is extremely critical to the amount of money you need to invest in in bringing forward something. And we're a very small company based in England and. Uh, we don't have the resources that most of the um, larger consumer electronics companies have, but they tend to spend really far too much money you know, pushing through a concept too early or, or maintaining it after it's sort of passed its peak. Uh, and you know, our, you know, our current situation dictates uh, our wisdom in, in how much we spend pushing through different projects. Tell me a little about the company, Moixia, like when you founded it and kind of what was your impetus for founding your own company around this? Well, about sort of three to four years ago, we—I've I've been sort of working for about five, five plus years now on a number of pieces of technology behind the, the sort of the new Moixa group. And then the word Moixa is the word axiom backwards. It's a, a very simple word which uh, is kind of uh, represents a bit about our philosophy about how we think about ideas. Is we like to revisit or rethink a fundamental assumption in, in a market, and therefore create a new product category, which hopefully is a multi-million unit category. And, and that's sort of a, a common theme of things thinking doing something maybe slightly differently which is substantially better. It would be wrong to say let's try an iPod-esque things because that's been overused but you know, they did it in the MP3 market which is very saturated and we're looking at similar kind of genetic ideas to say how do you make something substantially better by addressing the weaknesses in the technology or rethinking a fundamental assumption. And so that, and that rides through a lot of our what we do and, that, and most of our work at the moment is, is visible, becoming visible in the product space but the same message philosophy applies to some of the software things we'll be doing as well as some of the, the much more fundamental scientific things we'll be doing. Um, but we, we then 
created, I brought together kind of a crit of, of people um, sort of three or four years ago, and then maybe three years ago, we formalized that into a couple of operating structures, um, one more on research and one more on, on the design. And then the design company moved and did quite a lot of IP creation, um, and that's predominantly with uh, my design director, whose his name is Chris Wright, and we worked a lot around uh, interface technology, as what we've realized is, it's pretty obvious, is that the interface is becoming a, a, a dominant form of future platform. It's, it's no longer uh, in the future about the phone in your pocket because your phone changes so quickly. It has a rapid obsolescence curve of about six months or, or eight months. The feature which made it cool today is no longer a feature in three months' time. It's becoming more about style. But what doesn't change over any timeline is your physical hands, your physical eyes, your ears. People all operate in a very similar way. They all interact with technology in a similar way. And actually owning the, the, that, that particular last inch space is, is actually becoming more critical. You can do it once in a very good product, but actually it used to be that interfaces were an accessory, but now they are becoming, and we think will continue to become, a, a main form of consumer device. It's a personal device. You pick a wireless keyboard to work with all your devices, and your devices you're using them have changed so frequently. And so that, that space is something which is, has always been interesting to us, and it's always been um, particularly interesting to Chris, who's very good at um, sort of human interface design and usability design. And on my side, from the mechanical and material side, we work very strongly in looking at you know, how, as other technologies evolve, and what's the Darwinian things affecting other stuff, but what's the, the key underlying um, technology which is more easy to use in the hands of real consumers. I'm interested in what kind of structure you needed to support this innovation. So when you started your company, how do you finance it and how many employees did you launch with? Well, no, I tend to sort of have, by partly working at Accenture for so long, uh, have a slightly sort of a stage view about finance in the sense that I, I, you know, ideas should wash their own face pretty quickly. And if they, if they become too capital intensive, then the execution room um, may not be the best one. And so you know, the result of that is we would say tend to create IP and license it if it was, say, very capital intensive um, or if it's, uh, um, if it's cheapest and fastest to sort of build it ourselves through our factory network we would do that. It depends on the nature of the idea, um, how much sort of finance is required, uh, and that kind of drives and, and what's the best execution route for validating the idea. So a lot of the way that kind of was structured was kind of as an incubator for new ideas, where we'd take ideas through to when they were proven, that could be built, when the IP could be created, and, and take them through a validation stage. And, and part of the validation would be to you know, build and get the IP granted. Another validation might be to measure when the commercial horizon for it is. And so we tended to work with a team in, 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 in that year of maybe sort of three, three or four people under um, you know, what I call salaried, and then a, a network of a dozen or so people we'd kind of call upon on a traditional sort of virtual network where you know, we did a project where we had some materials guys at Cambridge University make up some custom metallic material for us. And that was kind of a, an outsourced project where we you know, leveraged some specialist skill um, to validate a, a hypothesis we're working on. But a normal thing where we didn't want to grow beyond the sort of our capability at the time, but also we didn't want to create a constraint on our way of thinking by having a set of teams in place with one particular skill. So it kind of, it kind of evolved in tight different ways. And at the same time, at the moment, we work on a number of software projects which have a similar curriculum network, but they're looking at you know, the sort of 
understanding the face style complexity stuff through to uh, a visualization things and you know things that you know, everyone else is looking at from their their angle we're looking at it, at it from our angle but those those products tend to happen with you know, specialists in different places and not necessarily under dedicated teams sort of in a room just all being constrained about the way they think so on you walk me through a case study of a new product so let's take the usb cell the product that you're currently promoting yes well, I mean, the, 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 I may have a step back and kind of give a bit more about the origin of the, the, the energy company. And is that because of our, our the first portfolios we're working on are around, the, you know, the future portable device, the future portable interface, the future form of future interaction with technology. Um, we, we looked at a, started looking at battery technology because a number of our devices, like our flexible screen technology, and um, some of it, even some of it, we had a very flat mouse we did, um, which is mechanically changed into a normal mouse, and, and they all required unusual battery technologies, either very thin or, or very high capacity. And, and then we started working with uh, our factories in China on custom design of, of lithium cells. And we kind of realized there was a, a gap on two things. One was on innovation in the battery market, because you know, people who are designing consumer electronics like ourselves or, or Apple people were designing their own batteries. And that, that sounded wrong. And secondly, uh, we were looking at all the charge mechanism for our portable devices, everything we had had to have cables or um, USB charging or um, some other form of charge mechanism, um, which is just ugly against the elegance of the portable device. And so if you look around today, you've got a whole bunch of um, phones designed and some take regular batteries, some take custom batteries, which are, end up being very expensive. And uh, others have cables and charge kits, which are, you know, are very large and bulky in comparison to the, the raw products. And there's something wrong with that. And uh, we therefore started looking at batch technology itself as an area we needed to solve to make our end user devices which are consumers of batteries um, just more friendly and more usable to the consumer and therefore more portable and it was out of that that we identified and invented the USB cell um, range of batteries uh, starting with you know the AA battery and other formats um, and uh, we've ended up sort of you know, getting quite deep into the battery technology and the charge circuitries in order to put all that technology together and, and then we did a sort of validation stage where we built and prototyped and I filed patterns and tested things and then we looked at the commercialization route which of that technology was much better and faster to launch a venture dedicated to doing that and so we spun out a, a venture called Moixer Energy to focus on um, battery technology and in particular then on, on the USB cell technology. So tell me, I mean, first just uh, describe what the USB cell is. And I know if people saw the uh, your AA battery, it's kind of an aha moment. Tell me what it is and just, you know, w what instant did you have that idea to design it the way that you did? Well, the, the, the USB cell is, is, a, is a range of battery formats, which um, the first one we've launched is the AA USB cell. And it's a regular battery. It looks like a regular AA battery and functions in the same way as a, as a standard rechargeable battery. But if you flip off the lid, um, you can, it reveals a USB plug built into the battery, which has charge circuitry embedded in it. So you can simply charge it by plugging into one of two billion free USB ports around the world. And it's really targeting the convenience of charging because people don't have 
chargers in their pockets. They don't really want to carry another cable and charge kit when they're traveling. They don't really want to have to find where they left it in the home if they're playing a, a wireless PlayStation game. They, you know, they, the charger's probably in the kitchen or the garage or, or, or at the summer house. It's, it's somewhere where you're not. And as a result, people who buy rechargeables today, we, we think only charge them five or six times um, because they've forgotten where the charger is. And there's a, then there's a sort of tendency to go back to alkaline, which is a sort of a single-use rubbish battery. And, and uh, the USB cell kind of tackles both of those markets by being something that um, you don't need anything else to charge it. You can use a USB port in your home, in your PlayStation, in your Xbox, in, on your laptop if you're traveling in your office. And so if you've got a wireless mouse uh, running an AO battery, you just take the AO battery and plug it into your mouse when, you're, when you're, your mouse has run out of power. And we found recently that actually wireless mice sales have been dropping because people get annoyed that they run out of batteries quite quickly. And so is it all, and every device today, because it's become wireless, all the designers of those products have gone back and said, oh, let's just put a regular battery in, but they're creating a problem, or they put a charge kit in, or they put a cable in. And so it's because of those wireless devices and all the MP3 accessories that there's been a lot of data about the, the massive growth in, in standard form batteries of the last few years. So it's into that market that we've launched the USB cell product as something to really target a range of problems, whether it's the convenience or the portability or the um, the, the ease of use or even environmental concerns about throwing away 15 billion regular batteries every year. Well, I think if I looked at that problem, I would have never came up with the idea of putting a, uh, putting a USB port on the actual AA battery. So, you know, when exactly did you come up with that idea? Well, I think that that's kind of the philosophy of the Moixer is to rethink something. We, we tend to sort of you know, look at something and think in alternate ways at the fundamental level, in this case, to reinvent a commodity. We, we did it in the keyboard space. We've done it in screen space, which is not public yet. Uh, we've, done, we've now done the battery space. And it's kind of you know, representative about how we think about innovation. And we, we may eventually do it in, in things in physics, is come up with something which, in hindsight, is blindingly obvious. I mean, it's partly about brand philosophy. If the idea is powerful enough, like, you know, it's a toothbrush, it says what it's about. USB cell um, says what it's about. It's an instant word which explains what it's doing it's instant visual if you see the product you you see what it does um it, it is a, it perhaps an unusual way to solve the problem but it's a genuine method of solving that problem and we've done it in a particular way in day one with a full-size usb and uh, and charge circuitry in there to, to, to show that it is a usb plug and it is a regular battery in future versions we simplify that and make it more elegant engineering wise and, and that has benefits for capacity uh, but it's less visual that it is a USB <laughs> plug, and that means it would have been harder to communicate that at the speed at which we launched technology. Uh, we announced a USB cell to the world on the 19th of September um, in the UK from a website which had um, no traffic because we started off um, and just put the site live on the, the morning of Thursday, on Tuesday the 19th, um, and we had no Google links to the word USB cell because it was a new word, uh, our trademark which we'd um, set up. And uh, within 48 hours, the site uh, was the 2,400th most visited site um, in the world on the Alexa rating scale. And within about a week, we had from zero to 1.5 million new Google links created to the word USB cell because of how we threw the idea into the blogosphere. And also because the idea is so viral that it's explainable by the word, by the image, by the product, by the concept, by the technology. 
by the benefits. And so it, it was an idea that traveled very, very quickly through, through blogs and photographs and so forth. And so, and it's partly because the, the idea is so powerful, it's partly because it is fundamentally an interesting innovation in a category which is, has been la has lacking innovation um, for so long. So I want to find out more about the marketing, but first, can you just tell me, like, where were you when you came up with this idea? Was it sitting around a conference room? Was it walking through a forest? You know, where where does this inspiration hit you? I, I, it, it, I, I try to analyze that from the perspective of what are the various ingredients which led to an idea. And, and you know, there was an instance which was um, you know, getting finally fed up with recharging my digital camera from my computer when I was trying to upload a, uh, a photograph. It was, you know, why, where's my battery? Where's my battery charger? There was a moment of realizing something we've been working on for a while was applicable in something as simple as the AA battery. Because we've been looking, as I mentioned, we've looked at, uh, we've got some wrist phone technology, and we've been looking at new batteries for, for that, we're looking at charge mechanisms for that, and we've built some technology um, previously which was very elegant and cost-reduced to do with charging. And so it was, we, we'd had kind of everything you know, at our fingertips, but it was a moment when it all came together and, and the technology we worked on got re-expressed in a slightly different format, and that format became something which was um, a faster technology to roll out. Uh, but we tend to we tend to analyze sort of the ingredients. I won't put a precise date on it from the point of view of of, of, of IP going into the technology at different times, which led to the technology. Um, but it, but it's also about recognizing what product opportunity is right for the market, and and also. Um, we, we, I tend to look at innovation from a holistic perspective where you've got to consider all variables in that instant, whether it's a, an IP variable or it's an elect, electronic variable or mechanical. In this one, it's constrained on seven dimensions. It's constrained on the point that we're actually launching a new brand, a battery brand USB set into a, a legacy market where we've had billions spent on advertising. So that's one constraint. IP is a constraint. Me mechanics and electronics are a constraint. The price point for the technology is a constraint. The marketing is a constraint. And physically, it's got to be a regular battery. And so it's highly constrained by uh, the landscape. And so, and, and we're actually best at that kind of problem, uh, which is why you know, it's, you know, some of our longer term things in, in physics are even more constrained by the, the logic and legacy of, of all these formulas and, and historic views about how things happen. And, uh, and so there's that kind of constrained environment that sometimes you get an instant um, solution which um, you know you validate what does it work on each of those different variables. So tell me exactly on the marketing side now what was the constraint how large was your marketing budget how many people did you have to go out and market this thing with and how do you approach it given those constraints? Well, the, I mean, the main constraint from the sort of the, the external perspective is you know, how do you launch a battery brand technology into a commodity market where um, there's been so much money spent by traditional companies in that space and batteries are you know are, are not terribly interesting from the blog perspective or weren't until we launched our products and so but our product uh, the basis of our marketing campaign was based on the fact that we had a powerful product we had a powerful viral product which explained itself by the name USB cell by the image of the product by the idea of the product. And so having that, that's an extremely viral, valuable property um, where that can travel very quickly. And so we had a strategy based on a really small team and very small budget where we, we did a top-down communication plan from Moixa uh, based in part using demo in technology in the US in part by 
talking to all the magazines in the UK on the same day um, and putting suppressors into the blogosphere on the same day on the Tuesday, such that from no, no announcement on, of any AI technology on Monday, suddenly on Tuesday, USBs had existed and a lot of blogs, a lot of magazines had the story. And then a few days later, we went to the, the sort of premium press US technology correspondents had a demo conference to join the story which is then emerging in the blogosphere grassroots of the of the UK sort of uh, online market and suddenly joined it with a top-down Wall Street Journal, USA Today, ZDNet type attack. And the result was kind of uh, what we called it perfect storm, but it was really to create a moment where um, the top-down discussion had um, sort of met met the sort of bottom-up discussion and all kind of converged to to sort of drive and drive a, a sudden jump from zero to a lot of traffic to a battery site within 48 hours and then that was that was partly by the power of technology itself but there was no way we could you know, create a budget to outspend any of the you know, legacy battery brands in launching something I think in a similar time frame one of the brands launched a a battery chemistry and spent maybe 10 to 20 million dollars on their US campaign alone and, and they got sort of probably normal attention compared to what the USB cell did in, in, in that time. So what made you decide to target uh, kind of more independent media and blogs before the mainstream press was, did one lead to the other or? Well, we, 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 tar so we targeted sort of um, various sort of online blogs and the online magazines, in part because, and, and, and real magazines, in part because you have to do things in a timeline where you give it to certain magazines and then in two weeks or a month later, the stories will begin to appear. But the thing which is interesting about, uh, we've placed our office in, in the centre of Soho in London, which is surrounded by about 500 of the you know, consumer magazines in the gadget world and the technology press and we, we, we was in GQ and in Vogue magazine and so we went, we went to a lot of the press houses locally to give them products and tell them about the, the technology and the benefits and the, the power of what we did was we wouldn't have done it if we hadn't had the product ready and so we had to, we worked in stealth mode up until the, the end of September where no one knew what we were doing and then we suddenly announced the technology the website went live, the press releases went, went out, the product, a product went on sale on the same day, and the journalists got physical, got physical um, batteries in their hands to use. And so it went from no existence to, to an instant existence. And, and that was part, help the power of it, because we don't like announcing something which is sort of in development, uh, because it's sort of vaporware compared to, say, the rendering skill of any company. How do you decide what to charge for them? We price it to be, um, the day one price was priced to be similar to a charge kit. Um, and so it's similar to say a, a half the price of a charge kit and four batteries for, for two of our batteries. Um, you know, we, we're bringing that price down in the future. The price is really set based around the, the market interests of the product at the time and, and based around the sort of one of the comparables, which was um, the, the charge kit. Um, and, but in order to make it work as a, a, a com competing category to to both rechargeable batteries and alkaline, then we're going to do um, things with versions and pricing in the future. Okay, and how many have you sold so far? I won't, won't go into that, but, uh, but the the operating company is profitable on that on that product line already after about um, 50 days. The product the product's now been in the market about 12 weeks. So, what kind of metrics are you looking at after you launch this product? How many sales have you made and well, I, I mentioned some of the the online metrics and the ten, in the sense of how much attention the site got very quickly. I think one of the other metrics is 
uh, how much uh, in-band communication we've got and, and obviously how much press we've got. The, the, the technology has been now covered in uh, a huge majority of the online um, blogs as well as uh, most traditional um, computer magazines, um, predominantly in the UK, but also a number in the States for an for announcement there. It's even sort of reached recently um, magazines like I uh, hit USA Today after the demo conference at the Wall Street Journal. And so we measured both the sort of the consumer take-up of the idea, because the first level is to measure how far the idea has got. And we measured a lot of inbound web traffic. We've also had, had a lot of inbound um, visitors from lots of countries. We've had about 200 countries visit the site um, since we launched it 12 weeks ago, um, including the Vatican has, has visited our online battery company. And uh, we, we also had a lot of distributors uh, and, and retail channels call us. We've had about 80 countries or so now get in contact with maybe 800, 900 distributors who've expressed interest in stocking or reselling uh, the product. And so one of the challenges we have is actually to filter down to the major channels. And it's reduced our business development need to go out and sell the product to channels as they're coming to us and we're selecting the ones we want to work with. And that's uh, an interesting way we've been very effective in using the, the web to um, source and uh, validate our, 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 uh, our production. That's interesting. So even though it's a physical product, you've been able to kind of leverage the internet so that you're not subject to a lot of the um, hardships that a physical product has in terms of distribution and sales. Yes, well, it's in part because the product obviously has a, a massive fit to, I mean, if you use a computer, you can use our product. And so uh, we've done our first communication via the, the computer to the world. And as a result, you know, it's helping to um, select which companies we work with. Uh, we, we also have it hitting the um, top 10 Alexa rating for uh, fastest moving websites of the week um, on the, from the first week of the traffic. So to help drive attention into retail channels, I think uh, Amazon called us having um, seen that and came through um, our just online inquiry system, which was at the time handling thousands of inquiries, unfortunately got picked up and now they have the product stocked in, in time for Christmas. So now earlier you'd mentioned that uh, speed is, you know, very important in innovation. How did it play in here in terms of how fast you felt you had to move on bringing the idea to market? And then after you brought it to market, how much pressure did you feel to get the word out quickly? I, I think that, I mean, you've got to do things at the, um, cr um, at the correct time um, and you've got to, got to do them in the correct way. I think speed is important in, in, in validating things. So in order to reduce unnecessary spend, you need to sort of you know, pick a spend and take, pick a target and validate things up to that. Um, a lot of companies sort of you know, wait and pr 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 uh, have a sort of procrastinize for years before doing anything. We, we believe very much in, in doing things and launching things. We're, we're less interested in, in technology which is um, you know, based on a, a five to ten year assumption about what may happen. We prefer to actually do it and test it in a real product which can be bought um, early by consumers. So we went out having built technology for all some of our mobile phone versions, but uh, we're still developing those. We haven't launched them, but we have launched the first category, which is unfortunately the largest category is the AA battery um, because that's an easiest way to, to share the product. We, if we announced the phone one at the same time, then that would have sort of diluted the message and potentially confused people if they didn't understand the new concepts in the first second they looked at um, in a retail store or, or, or blog page. So tell me how you're tooling up for the future now. Um, you know, today, what's the current headcount at your company 
And then where do you see taking this? Like, do you see just driving out there and trying to make uh, your battery division now something that is of a similar scale to like, you know, a Duracell or an Energizer? Or is it the kind of thing where you more just incubate the ideas and push them out? So we've regrouped the company into the battery operating units and the, some of the research project units. But in the battery company, the challenge is to now look at um, the aggressive scale. We've done a very successful launch, and now we're looking at how we scale that, given the, um, the head of demand interest in globalizing it. We've already rolled that in the UK. It's now online into Europe and the States. And we've got a lot of demand to take it international uh, beyond those territories and to put it into lots more retail channels than we have had expected to um, by, by the you know, early next year. And so we're looking at how we are best to scale that. You know, do we build all that? Do we partner with it? And, and a number of different options are on the table at the moment because the business is commercial and self-funding. We've got, we've got different ways we can do that. So tell me a little about what it's like being an entrepreneur in the UK. I know that kind of, I think the image that at least many of us Americans have of, in, of business in Europe is that it kind of moves slower and is very structured and maybe not so entrepreneurial. What have you found over there and how have you dealt with it? I, I think it, there are a few perceptions about that. And I think historically, um, that, that's been more of an issue on this side of the pond than there. Um, that said, um, you know, being an innovator, uh, inventor of technologies, um, the UK has always been um, probably one of the leading geographies for um, the degree of innovation. The, the thing which has been lacking is the ability to commercialize um, some of those ideas. And I think that's changed a lot in, in recent times, partly by you know, the e-commerce generation. Uh, but I think that having worked myself in multiple geographies, I also run a company um, for Accenture in Singapore. Uh, I picked up a sort of a, a much more global network and so tend to base myself here in London because we, I like London and uh, my family is here. Um, but we tend to work internationally in the sense that you know, today we've got a website visited by 200 countries and we're shipping products to different parts of the world. And I think we, we operate in a global way, but it is more difficult here. And one of the things we did when we did the funding strategy is we put together, I, I put some funding into the company and I put, put together some angels into the battery company from um, the UK and also from America in part to bridge that gap and in part because I needed just different skill sets in in the investor pool who could bring and open different doors in the future. Or you know, I have a Texas, Texas investor um, and a lot of the big retail channels are based there. And so having someone who knows people locally is also helpful. Yeah, so kind of going forward now, is there anything that you know has you up at night or keeps you worried about this opportunity? I mean, there's always, I guess, competitive pressures if anyone else moves into it or you know who knows it there could be something you learn about the market is there anything that keeps you worried um i, I think it's it's looking and, and balancing the different opportunities we we had uh, we weren't quite we were prepared for the global pr we would generate from the technology we weren't prepared for the amount of time the inbound traffic would take in dealing with um, we have a lot of aggressive um, distributors phoning us demanding product and why you know a lot of people in the states complain day one about why we'd only put the products in the first week available in the UK. Um, it took us a couple of weeks to finalize setting up in the States. And it, it, it took a lot of time in the first um, month just dealing with the, you know, the overload of inbound traffic whilst at the same time trying to scale it. I think what, what I'm looking at in terms of our challenges for next year is trying to scale um, the, the company geographically and roll out more product lines in the smartest way. 
Um, and that's partly maybe through partnership and, and not duplicating things that uh, you, if the company was trade sold later, we wouldn't need, or if we built it all ourselves and keeping the keeping the infrastructure efficient for the opportunities we've we've you know ticked off by the time we get there. Uh, I'm also extremely interested, and in, it's a big challenge to move forward on the wider energy agenda, uh, which USB Cell is open to do low energy in the home. Since success in that market, um, you know, is critical for all. Uh, we, we like to build technology we can roll out you know, within 18 months, um, and we're looking at rolling out um, you know, low-carbon solutions for homes you know, within, within 18 months of, of ramping up those projects. And we believe actually this philosophy of um, helping people disconnect energy in their home and power things in a low-energy manner, uh, which can be powered by today's energy technology, um, is a very powerful idea. It's probably the only way um, the governments can massively reduce carbon emissions within a a two-year agenda. And we just believe about building it, manufacturing in Asia, shipping it via the major distribution routes, and having the hands of consumers, um, and, and broadcasting that very quickly. So we're quite keen to bring forward that, because there's obviously a lot of market demand for um, solutions consumers can use rather than solutions which are slowed down by you know, government policy and take a long time to happen. We're also considering how fast we move on our portfolio of opportunities in, in our other um, design companies because there's a number of things which are uh, becoming more relevant and we're looking to bring back some of the, the lead engineers that we have assigned to the battery companies to start moving forward on some of those other opportunities. So we've got different things to juggle and at the moment I'm seeding the battery company as I, I'm very good at scaling things uh, and starting them and I, I need to sort of free up more of my time to look at some of the other opportunities um, you know, over the next six months. So I think I think what's really interesting to close out of this is that a lot of people out there are creative and have ideas that, you know, they think will fundamentally kind of change the world or change markets. But then you see a lot of people either kind of lose money in pursuing ideas that turn out to not, you know, maybe have a wide market or have their timing right. And then on the flip side, you see people who do have good ideas often just don't execute on it well. So what's your advice out there to people with ideas who are coming up with these kind of ideas to be able to both evaluate them and execute? I I think rule zero is you're right. You need lots of different pieces of expertise in order to validate and do something. Um, There are people who are very good at one thing and not very good at the other. Uh, Within within the group of things we do, we tend to sort of validate on lots of different dimensions before taking a a risky action. Um, I think rule one for people is timing um, because I've learned through doing lots of innovations in lots of different geographies and and, and, and uh, types of corporate environment that if you get that wrong you've got a massive problem and uh, we tended to do a lot of validation of ideas by you know, taking them under NDA to various end channels and finding out you know, when it's on their agenda um, and we don't do much you know, consumer um, focus groups because we believe actually the product's powerful enough um, you, your consumers sort of are going to see, see the benefits of it um, you, consumer focus groups tend to sort of um, in, be dangerous in, in, in getting kind of a, a lowest common denominator opinion. Um, but we do validate things with end buyers at retail channels in, in you know, competing directors of consumer electronics companies who may be licensees of our technology. Uh, they might be partners or they might end up being competitors. But if, if it's not peaking their radar, then it's something that 
probably we've mistimed it on, and they have probably more experience by having reviewed lots of products internally. So, so we tend to do a certain amount of validation on timing. That timing is the thing you have to get right. I think secondly, it's also about spending the right amount of capital around the opportunity uh, available at that time. Everything has a different execution route, and so technology might be something that is always licensed. It might be something that you always partner with, or it might be something you build. And every idea which people have is different. There's no uh, blanket rule we have, um, and it's also that dictates the best way to roll out an idea. It also dictates the the best way to scale idea, uh, scale an idea. We could, you know, put in lots of um, external funding and try to, you know, scale to, you know, take out certain companies. And certainly that's a, a valid scenario. But whether it's the right scenario for the technology, for the market opportunity, whether it duplicates costs, which ultimately are, uh, are not adding value beyond what the technology and the, and the, uh, does, you know, it's, it's a different scenario. So you tend to work through each, each option. There's no sort of blanket rule. And so I would kind of kind of give that advice. The other thing is to leverage network. We've um, built a lot of our, our companies by leveraging lots of different experts and finding that specialist skill who's very good at validating uh, something in some particular territory and not trying to sort of you know, bring that all in-house and, and, and try to do too much. We, we, we sort of do a lot of validation through lots of external people, and it's about leveraging a large network um, and make connecting the dots that ultimately you can make things happen. So the, the idea of just the inventor kind of sitting in the basement cooking up ideas that then go out and become huge successes is a myth. It's more uh, a matter of kind of networking and getting out there and testing the idea. I, it, it, it's, it's a mixture. It depends on the nature of innovation. And so, I mean, the, the odd thing is that you know, we, we think about some new ideas in science. And you know, most academic ideas come from someone sitting in Santa Fe Institute for 10 years and then coming up with a formula which you know, will change the world or um, you know, a good algorithm for page ranking or something. And so you know, the, the value of the innovator um, thinking away is, is fundamental. The question is, um, in, in when you choose to build it, is how you join those dots. We, we have a luxury that uh, we, we tend to think about the commercial side at the same time as the innovation, at the same time as the IP landscape, the same time as the marketing, the branding. And that limits what we do in the sense that you know, we could design the best um, clamshell phone in the world, but there's nothing unique about a clamshell because in IP language, it's a briefcase. And so even though it's a great idea, it would be very difficult for a small group to, to do anything substantive in that kind of format. Um, and so we tend to sort of, even if, even if we thought of that, we wouldn't you know, drive that as a major project because it's not unique enough um, or as powerful enough to, to be something that a, a, a smaller innovation group can, can deliver to a world market. Well, Simon, I want to thank you for coming on, and I also have USB cells right now powering both my mouse fantastic, and my portable recorder. Available to buy from USB cell, and we're delivering into Canada and North America and also Europe, uh, and we'll be announcing some, some new things at, at various points in, in, in the new year. Great. Well, I hope everyone's uh, listening on USB-powered uh, MP3 players pretty soon. Fantastic. That's all for this edition of Venture Voice. I see so many people who have great ideas for inventions and don't know where to begin. And often, the sad part is, they buy some inventor's kit off TV and they end up losing a lot of money. So I really hope that this episode saves at least a few people from that fate and lets them really capitalize on their idea. This show is fueled off of your ideas. 
So make sure that you log on to our website at www.venturevoice.com and leave your comments on the show. You can leave the comments publicly or you can use our web form and leave them privately. Also, be sure to check out our blog where I write about some of the behind-the-scenes work that goes on here at Venture Voice. And as always, please feel free to call our listener line where you can leave a comment that we might play on the show. That number is country code 1-212-461-4850. Or you can find that on our contact page on the site. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.